May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Jesus. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. If you have a Bible, please turn to that passage in 1 John chapter 1 that Amy read. If not, you're free to take out your phone as long as you silence that little thing and uh, find 1 John chapter 1 there. I want to bring you a short word of encouragement from this letter that has been resonating in my soul for the last two or three weeks as I've myself spent time in 1 John. John draws a picture of the Christian life that I find compelling. He establishes a foundational understanding of our life in Christ and explains through the letter how to build on that foundation in such a way that gives me encouragement and lifts my heart. And I hope so and pray for you as well. Clearly from chapter 1, verse 1, the Christian life starts with the initiative of God. His personal invasion of the world through the incarnation of God the Son, the second person in the Trinity. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. And we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Now, use the word invasion. That's usually a violent word, right? Like waging war. And there is clearly an invasive dimension to the incarnation because Jesus did indeed come to rescue us from the bonds of sin and death. He came to open the prison doors of our souls, to free us from the enslavement of Satan, to rebuke and unmake the deeds of the devil. But that is not the tone of John. <laughs> it's true. But that's not what John seems to bring forward. What he does is confirm that, first of all, the incarnation is historical and real. It's as near as the grasp of the hand sitting by somebody sitting near you. And if you grab somebody right now, the incarnation, Jesus says, is just that real. And I think he, I mean, John says that. And I think that he's remembering not only his own experiences, but also that moment of Thomas touching the hands of Jesus. And then he goes on to explain the purposes of the incarnation. And these are the words he uses. Eternal life and then fellowship, verse 3. So that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know exactly why he begins by saying it's eternal life and it produces fellowship among us. He does. There's this koinonia, there's this communion that we share that literally in Christ redefines humanity. So that racial issues and ethnic issues and educational issues and all the cultural issues that separate us are, are really put aside for a greater reality of our oneness in Christ as brothers and sisters as part of a koinonia, a oikos. But that fellowship we have with one another, he says, is because there's an even deeper fellowship that we have individually with God through Jesus and therefore, we also share with one another because we've all been drawn into this deeper reality. And then he goes on to say and give a third purpose, life, fellowship, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Joy. Life, fellowship, and joy. That's the outline, the beginning of the outline of the Christian life. Now, here's a reality about that new life. Verse 5. 
God himself is light. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. In biblical terms, there can be no life without light. That's spiritually and biblically true. And spiritually and biblically light, the light of God, is clear and beautiful and bright and pure and beneficial and open and welcoming and glorious. And that is the source or the context in which life erupts and life is sustained. Now the corollary is that the darkness of sin and impurity The darkness of rebellion and anger, the darkness of shame and guilt, the darkness of hiddenness and deception and brokenness and wounding and hatred and injustice cannot survive in the light of God. It has to be dealt with in order that fellowship with God can be sustained and grow. So there's this active process of dealing with the darkness and walking into the light. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But again, the Lord has provided for all that, right? How does this darkness get dealt with? He's provided with it two ways. Foundationally, because Jesus fulfilled his mission on the cross. Jesus came and his mission above all was to die for us. To reconcile us to God by getting rid of that which separated us from God. To get dealing with the darkness. And the incredible experience of Easter Sunday when we realize that all of the works of darkness. Let me back it up. In Luke chapter 22, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Remember what he says? He says, now is your hour and now is the hour of darkness. But three days later, it was all obliterated by the life of Christ. The light broke in and the darkness fled. So he gave his life a ransom for us on the cross. But now the benefits of that continue in an ongoing active way. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we are broken, the power of darkness is broken, but also the presence of darkness is cleansed and set aside as we walk in the light. And it involves two aspects of how we, how we walk in this light. How do we walk into this life and fellowship and this joy? And the first he mentions to us, there's, a, there's two of them that we're going to look at. The first is this life of consistent confession. The Christian life is a confessional life. It's walking in humility before God. And in every moment, in any moment when we sin... We are welcome to the presence of God. If anyone sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there's this generosity of God saying, your sin is serious. That's the darkness. It's creeping back into you. It's, it's still attached to you. Bring it to me. I'll deal with it. Bring it to me. I'll deal with it. But there's this confessional life, and you fail to receive it if you pretend you don't sin. So the humility of always standing before the judgment of God. That's this confessional life. And then he goes on to say, there is, however, a challenge if you use that to try to play games with God. If you sin willy-nilly and say to yourself, I can do what I want because I've always got this out, you know, this, the, you know, this confession. I can you know, swing back around and confess and then go back and do what I want to do. Then basically... What you're saying is, I really don't want to walk with God. 
Because if, if there's anything that fellowship with God means, it means walking with him, alongside him, letting him shape and form your life and soul. What else could fellowship with God mean? And so what John says in chapter 2, verse 3, is that walking with God is walking according to his commands, walking in his will. So let me summarize. John proclaims that Jesus came, he invaded, in order to bring us eternal life that leads to fellowship with God, fellowship with each other, and joy. In order to walk in that life, we have a two-legged life, confession and obedience. Confession and obedience, it's like two legs to walk into this life. And that becomes the pattern of our life from then on, this confessional humility and this seeking of obedience. And in this order, and I want you to hear what I'm saying, in the order that I've just described, if you read on in the book of John, 1 John, which we're not going to do, he brings us to the point that if we're following that order, Jesus has invaded to set us free. He's settled the sin problem. We live in fellowship with him, fellowship with each other, with joy. We walk in the light. We walk confessionally. In this order, this obedience to God's command, it ends up with living, us living in, in one command that summarizes it all, love. What we find out is following the Lord, as I've just described, according to his desires and his will, is a life of love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly what he says I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you that life. And much of the rest of the letter is, is the ex- exposition of what love looks like, what love, love, love looks like, particularly within the family of God. He says later on, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you don't, know, you don't love God. Quit pretending. You've got to have these things together. Because love is the outcome of walking with Christ. Love is the outcome of walking in fellowship with God. Now, I began by saying that for me, this is a foundational framework of the Christian life, and I find it compelling. And it starts with God and his initiative, bringing heaven to earth, bringing us life, calling us to fellowship with him, what an amazing thought, and with one another, what an amazing thought, how sweet it is to be part of a family where we are one in Christ, and we have this two-legged walk of obedience and confession. And that confession is love that looks like the love of God. (laughs) The love of God that initiates and moves toward the darkness, toward people who are trapped in darkness. That's what we're called to do. Love that therefore sets people free and seeks to see people set free of the darkness. That's what we are here to do, to proclaim the gospel. Love that invites others to share in this life of humility and confession with this openness and vulnerability one another. That's what love is amongst the body of Christ. Love that calls us to encourage each other to obey God in a growing lifestyle. I've been following Jesus since I was 13 years old. I'm 71. You can do the math, okay? And I will say that in the last year and a half or two years, my primary prayer for myself has been that I would grow in love. And I look back at my life and look in this life that I've lived and what I want more than anything and what I long for more than anything is to love God more and love people more. Because I realize more and more that that is the sum total of the life that I'm called to live in the order that I've described. I'm not defining love. 
by my own desires. I'm not defining love in ways that meet my needs. I'm defining love by what God tells me love is. And in that order, my wholehearted desire as I live the rest of my life is love. Because I believe that that's what God has called me to. That is the sum total of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In this order. In this order. And so I encourage you. I hope you will grab onto that. Grab onto some of the moments. This amazing fellowship with God, with one another. This call to confession and to obedience. The realization that to do so is to live a life of love. What a joy. That's what Paul and John says. I'm telling you this so you can share joy. And I'm telling you this so you can share joy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.